Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The prophet writes, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord for us this evening. Thanks be to God. The, I um, chose this passage to preach on tonight before I got a call to a different church and uh, realized as I was preparing my sermon this week that it might come across as a little bit like, I have a complaint against you people, but that's not the case. That's not the case. I just want to clear that up right away. <laughs> I'm actually going to start my sermon with a joke, which I don't do very often. The joke goes like this. There was once a woman who was at her wit's end with her two sons because they were constantly misbehaving. So she brought them to talk to the pastor of her church. The pastor thought it would be best to speak with each of the boys separately in his office. And so while one son sat in the church lobby, the pastor sat the other boy down in his office. And the pastor was hoping to start a deep discussion about God and faith and then eventually get to the point of self-control and good behavior that pleases God and honors parents. And so the pastor asked the boy, Son, where is God? And the boy became visibly nervous, looking wide-eyed at the pastor. His knees started shaking, and he didn't say a word. And the pastor leaned back and said, it's a simple question, kid. Where is God? The child took a deep breath and didn't say a thing. So the pastor decided he was going to change the way he was asking the question. So he said, tell me where you can find God. After some time sitting in silence, the pastor gave an exasperated sigh and told the boy to go get his brother. <laughs> So the boy went outside into the church lobby and he whispered to his brother, Oh, Bobby, I think we're in real trouble now. 
the preacher man lost God and he thinks we took him. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. You guys laughed. That's good. That means it was a good joke. Okay, I was a little nervous because I don't do this very often. The reason I wanted to start off uh, the sermon with a joke is because most jokes are funny because someone in the joke just misses the point. Like the boy in this joke who just missed the point of what the, ser- what the pastor was trying to get at. And that's one of the recurring themes that we see throughout scripture as well. And uh, there's some writers who talk about scripture as, uh, talk about the gospel as a great comedy that it's this turn of events where people are constantly missing the point and God is constantly bringing them back to what the point really is. God is constantly correcting people when we miss the point. But in the Bible, as in life, the reality of God's people missing the point is not very often as funny as this joke. Our text for today has a familiar verse. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? This verse is the theme verse of World Renew. It's it's a theme verse of gems, I think, um, and of many Christian institutions around the world. This is a well-known passage. And this verse, while this verse is familiar to us, the context of this verse probably is not. The prophet here imagines God bringing his people to court. The Lord calls the mountains and the hills as his witnesses. He summons the foundations of the earth to jury duty, and he accuses his people of really missing the point. And how have they missed the point? Well, the story that God calls them to remember in verses 4 and 5 gives us hints and clues as to what all has gone wrong in Israel. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. That's the common story of all Israel, the story of the Exodus, the story of God delivering them from slavery. But then God calls on his people to remember a very specific story. The story of Balak and Balaam and the journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Balak, uh, king of Moab, and Balaam, son of Beor, from the book of Numbers, the story of Balaam's talking donkey. Yeah? Um, That's the story that we're familiar with, but this is actually a different story that uh, God is calling his people to remember here. Um, We're more familiar with the first story of Balak and Balaam, the one with Balaam's donkey, where Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam the prophet to curse the people of Israel as they march through his land. And so Balaam, the prophet, goes on his way to meet the king, but on his way an angel appears and stands in the path of Balaam's donkey that Balaam can't see, but his donkey can. And so the donkey steps off the road. And Balaam beats it until he gets back on the road. And this happens three times. And Balaam beats his donkey every time. And every time the donkey steps off the road and Balaam beats this poor animal. And after the third time, the donkey actually speaks to Balaam and says, what, what have I done? What have I done to make you beat me these three times? Have I not always served you faithfully as your donkey? Have I ever done this to you before? And Balaam says, no. 
And then God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord there who tells Balaam that he may only speak the words that God gives him. And then Balaam, when he's with Balak, the king of Moab on the, on the mountain, looking down at the people of Israel, Balak tells him, curse the people of Israel. And he opens his mouth and utters blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing over the people of Israel. That's the first story of Balak and Balaam. And that's often where we kind of end the story of Balak and Balaam. But that's not where their story ends. Because after this failed attempt to curse Israel, Balak and Balaam hatch a plan to get the people of Israel to curse themselves. And their plan is that they're going to send the most beautiful Moabite and Midianite women to seduce the men of Israel and lead them into idolatry to worship the Baal, the god Baal of Peor, of the town of Peor. And this plan succeeds. The men of Israel fall for the women of Moab, the women of Midian, and follow them into idolatry. And God speaks to Moses and tells Moses that this is a terrible sin that his people have fallen into, the sin of idolatry. And God declares his judgment against Israel here at Shittim. And Moses gathers the people of Israel before the tabernacle and tells them of God's judgment against them because of this sin that they've committed, that they've fallen into idolatry. And while the people are there weeping in front of the tent of meeting, weeping in front of the tabernacle, mourning because of the judgment of God against them. This is a wild story. Just steal yourselves. While they're there weeping and mourning the judgment of God against them, a Hebrew man named Zimri brings Cosby, a Midianite woman, right in front of the tent of meeting in the presence of all the people of Israel, and the text tells us, goes into her. He has intimate relations with her in public, in front of the tabernacle of God's presence, where the people are gathered to hear God's word. Wild story. And it just, when we hear this story, it just seems bizarre and sordid to us until we understand what's going on here. Because Canaanite religion, like many forms of paganism in the ancient world, was what religious scholars call a sympathetic religion. And that doesn't mean that the people who followed this religion had great sympathy. That's not what it means. What it means is that the way that they worshiped, the way that they communed with their gods, was, was so in order to get the Canaanite gods to do what they wanted, you had to kind of like, show them what you meant. And so when Canaanites wanted, went to their temples to pray to their gods for a good harvest or for rain or for a child, for anything having to do with fertility, they would hire a temple prostitute and go in front of the temple and show the gods what it was that they wanted the gods to do for them. In front of the Asherah pole in front of the idols of Baal, so that the gods would see them and say, oh, that's what they want from us. It's wild. 
And so Zimri in this story, Zimri, the man who's doing this in front of everybody, having fallen into a totally idolatrous mode of thinking, he hears Moses say that God has declared judgment on them because of their sins, because they're worshiping other gods. And in his pagan mind, he says, oh man, it's bad that I've been worshiping Baal. I need to worship our God. And so he worships the God of Israel in the way that he thinks is right because he's fallen so deeply and profoundly into paganism. That's what's happening in this story. He's fallen so deeply into idolatry that he can't imagine worshiping God in any other way than the way that the nations around him worship their gods. He tries to worship God the way he worships Baal, the way he worships idols, the way that he worships everything else. That's how badly Zimri has missed the point in this story. And that's what God accuses Israel of through the prophet Micah in this passage today. You think I'll be impressed if you bring me burnt offerings, yearling calves, thousands of rams, rivers of oil? You think you can get my attention if you offer your firstborn to the fire, your precious baby to cancel out your sins? God accuses the people of Israel of missing the point, of trying to worship him the way that the nations worship the false gods all around them, of trying to sway God's attention through opulent offerings, trying to change God's mind through grand displays of religious devotion instead of the humble obedience, faithful justice, and patient mercy that God demands. And I wonder sometimes how we've missed the point. If Micah was speaking these words to us today, how would he say it? Obviously, we're not tempted by Canaanite paganism. We're not, uh, we're not in any way tempted to worship God in that way. But what are, what are the ways that we fall into idolatrous modes of thinking when we fail to worship God the way he demands and instead worship him in ways that make sense to us in our culture? I wonder if Micah's prophecy today wouldn't sound something like this. Listen to what the Lord says. All rise, the court is now in session. I call the mountains and the hills as my witnesses. I summon the foundations of the earth to stand as a jury because I've got some words to say, some complaints against my people. What have I done to you? How have I mistreated you? Is my yoke too heavy, my burden too great to bear? Answer me. I forgave your sins, I delivered you from evil, I brought your ancestors safely across the sea to settle in a new land. I gave you faithful leaders to teach and guide you, Kuntz and Birman, Dion and Rorda, Galenzi and Medendorf and Bacali. Remember all the ways the powers of this world, the cultural forces of this age, tried to pull you away from me. Remember the times that you fell away, praying to me like I was Santa Claus, like I was a character on TV who couldn't really hear you. Remember how I brought you from Ottawa Street to Bleams Road. Remember my faithfulness to you throughout the decades. How can I come before my God? How can I show proper respect to the one true God? Should I bring my tithes, a tenth of everything I own? 
Would God be impressed with a great big check, one with lots and lots of zeros? Would God be moved if I sacrificed my pension plan, my business, my children? But God has already made it plain how to live, what to do. And it's quite simple. Work toward justice in your lives and in the world. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation, don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. The story that God calls his people to remember in this passage, this, the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, it's only a few miles when you look at it on a map. It's a short journey. This is a very short journey in the history of the people of Israel. But even though this journey is only a few miles, it spans three entire books of the Bible. All the way from the story of Zimri in the book of Numbers to the story of the renewal of the covenant at Gilgal in the book of Joshua. At Shittim, the people of God fall into idolatry, and the way that that story ends is quite gruesome, but packed with meaning. While Zimri and Cosby are doing their thing in front of the tabernacle, all of Israel watches, some in horror, others in approval, still thinking that this is the best way to change God's mind. But the Spirit of God comes on Phinehas the priest, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, and filled with the zeal of the Spirit of God, Phineas takes a spear and he runs it through this couple right there in front of the tent of meeting. And through Moses, God makes a covenant with Phineas that his descendants will be priests forever. And the thing is, there's an interesting thing that happens. It's, in, it's I'm going a little bit off script here. It's interesting to me that Micah presents this story. But his, his answer for how to move forward is not something drastic, something dramatic, something big and, and, and eventful that's going to change people's minds and turn people in a different path. The way that Micah presents it is almost that that story is kind of sad. That story is really sad. That God's people fell so far into idolatry that it took something that drastic for them to realize that what they were doing was wrong. But that's what it takes sometimes when people fall that far and deep into idolatry. Sometimes it takes drastic action to wake people up out of idolatry. And so in this story, the story that God tells his people to remember, God uses the zeal of Phineas to get Israel back on the right path. And then we see the rest of the story, how God confirms the law through Moses, how God provides them with faithful leadership through Joshua, how God delivers them faithfully through the waters of the Jordan into the promised land and renews the covenant with his people at Gilgal. But what Mike is saying here is that God will always lead us faithfully. God will always provide us with direction and guidance if only we turn to him. 
We don't need to go so far that we need some drastic intervention from zealous people like Phineas. God gives us tools for self-correction, for self-reflection, so that we don't have to rely on drastic displays like that of Phineas to help us see the ways that we've missed the point and move us back to the right path. God gives us the incredible gift of regular confession, the opportunity to examine ourselves and one another and root out any sinful behavior that lingers in our hearts. God invites us to remember his faithfulness, his goodness, and his promise to forgive our sins day after day. A month ago, I had the opportunity to preach at The Journey for their Sunday morning worship service. And it's amazing to me the things that God is doing at The Journey. They've been without a pastor now for two years. And over that time, they've been doing some incredibly difficult but important soul-searching, self-examination as they discern God's future for them as a worshiping community and as a church. And so they're now getting ready to organize in the Christian Reformed Church, hopefully, in the near future. They've got a calling committee put together to search for a new senior pastor. They're challenging their members and their giving so that they can aim to have a full-time minister instead of a bivocational minister like they had. And, and so that they can start working toward paying ministry shares. They've been appointed a classical counselor. They've put together a church profile and posted ads on the network. And they've been reviewing minister's profile from the Pastor Church Resources Office. It's really an amazing thing. Our baby is growing up. Anyway, after, um, after I preached at the journey, Ashley and I stayed and talked with some of the members for a while. They don't shake hands after the service like we do here. So Ashley and I just kind of stood over on one side of the sanctuary and people would come up and talk to us. And many of them sent their greetings to the congregation here and to their friends here at community. But one man came up to tell me the story of his conversion to Christianity. He had grown up as an atheist in England, and he'd been perfectly content all his life not to bother with any ideas about the supernatural or the divine. But a few years ago, he moved to Kitchener. And some of the people from the journey befriended him and started telling him about Jesus and his life was changed. The world around him, the way he describes it, the world around him became enchanted with the divine presence. And now he sees and feels God's presence all around him, all the time, in everything, filling him up with the goodness of God's grace and the wonders of his love. Everything to him is a reminder of the things that God has done for him and he told me, you know what, Pastor John? I think the biggest thing that changed for me when I became a Christian was how I saw confession. I always thought that Christian confession was about feeling bad about yourself all the time because God was unhappy with everything you do. But now I realize that confession is an invitation to experience God more fully, to live more deeply into his kingdom. We see all these glimpses and feel all these moments where we get a taste of what God is getting ready for us when Jesus comes again. We catch visions and feelings of eternity as we live our lives in God's presence even now, and we want more. We want more. 
And so we say, God, oh God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And the thing that's preventing us from feeling more of that kingdom, from seeing more of that kingdom, from living more of that kingdom, is our own shortcomings. And so I pray, God, get me out of the way. Fix the broken parts of me, strengthen the weak parts of me, clean the dirty parts of me, because I want more. I want more of all the goodness that God is doing. I want more. May we all long for more of God's kingdom in our lives and in the world. God has shown us what is good. Want more? Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. Join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, sometimes we are just baffled by the stories that you show us in your word. We thank you that we do not have to fall so deeply as to need someone like Phineas to do something drastic to show us that we have strayed from your way. We thank you for the blessing that confession is, that you offer us the opportunity every day of our lives to come before you and admit the ways that we prevent your kingdom from coming more fully in our lives and in the world. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would search our hearts, that you would strengthen our weak parts, that you would heal our wounded parts, that you would fix our broken parts, so that we may see and taste and hear more and more of your kingdom in this life, even as we prepare for the life to come. All these things we pray in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end.